Hello, my name is Patricia Rosvora and you're listening to Kitchen Conversations. This podcast aims to open up the mysterious and vague Eastern Bloc to a broader audience. For each episode, I'm inviting one artist or researcher and together we explore the relation, interest and the urgency to create within the framework of the post-Soviet sphere. Here, I also wanted to thank everyone for listening and supporting this podcast. It's very rewarding to see that with every episode, the community is growing, which was, of course, the whole point of this platform. If you are a regular listener, you might want to check out my Patreon page where you can support my work and help me develop this amazing but time-consuming project. You can do that on patreon.com slash kitchenconversations. Welcome back, everyone. I think you're going to have a lot of fun listening uh, to today's episode since uh, the guest, uh, Natalia Papayeva, has uh, a good sense of humor and is a great uh, storyteller. She's a visual and performing uh, artist or performance artist born and raised in Buryatia, that is in eastern Siberia, but since 2013 uh, living and working in the Netherlands. And she's currently a resident at the Rijks Academy in Amsterdam, which is a really uh, beautiful and great thing for her. Her. I was supposed to visit her in the studio and record this podcast there. Unfortunately, this didn't work out, but uh, we managed to do it online. So Natalia uses her memories and experiences informed by her Buryat Mongolian background to create the performances. And she uses uh, singing, spoken word and uh, storytelling uh, to uh, put forward her ideas that have a lot to do with the disappearing uh, Buryat language, which we'll be speaking on uh, a lot today on the podcast. The artworks uh, she creates that are usually video performances raise uh, questions about uh, major themes such as loss and mourning, language and identity, land and climate, ritual and healing in a sometimes playful and sometimes very serious manner. I invite you to listen to our conversation with Natalia Papayeva, find out why there is the biggest Lenin sculpture in the capital of Buryatia, if it's really that cold in Siberia, and how the nomadic cultures actually treat the animals. Welcome, Natalia, to Kitchen Conversations. Hi. Hi, hi, hi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, sad that we cannot meet in person. I was actually supposed to be at this moment in your studio at the Reichs Academy, where you're now uh, a resident. Too bad I, I couldn't make it to Amsterdam because of uh, illness, as maybe people can hear a little in my voice. But uh, I'm happy that we are here. So, Natalia, I, uh, I say your name a bit in a Polish way. How would you tell your name? Natalia, it's, it's, I have a very strange relationship with my name because... Because also um, here on Zoom, I see you're Natasha. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, in, in Russian, then you have these double names, then you have uh, Natalia is a formal name, and then in my passport and every document, there will be Natalia, and then the name of my father, so then it's like Natalia Nikolaevna, but then... Uh, my friends and family, they call me Natasha. 
And, and when I moved to Europe, I stick to Natalia because people couldn't understand that I was Natasha, but at the same time Natalia. <laughs> yeah, we can, two different names. exactly, like yeah. Europeans cannot handle it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, then, then, it's, then so I get used to being Natalia because I thought, okay, but you know, I'm grown up and uh, this, is, this is then the way I call myself, but this is something new for me as well. So I think I call myself Natalia only for nine years that I live in Europe. How should I call you today? I think Natalia, because then we are in a European context. Natalia. Uh, context, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Natalia, for the very beginning, since I also don't know so much uh, you and your work, uh, as I was saying, I found out about your practice through a common uh, acquaintance or friend, uh, Julia Elias, uh, who told me about your work in the context of uh, yeah, decolonizing... Russia and Eastern Europe, I would say, uh, in a broad sense. And for the beginning, I would like you to just simply introduce yourself, your practice or whatever you tell when people get to know you, what is important for yeah, your practice and you as an artist. What I say first when I want to talk about myself is that I, I say that I'm a Buryat person who was born in... Um, Eastern Siberia and Buryatia, and that I make performance and video art. Why it was important for me to say that I'm a Buryat person and I come from Buryatia is that uh, my name, even my name, it's a Russian name, it's a Latin name. So then it's, it you will maybe not know if you just see on the papers that I, behind this name, there's a Buryat person. And for diversity, I think it's important. It feels like as Russia, it's just uh, Moscow, and that that Russia is only Russian people, uh, Slavic people. Slavic people, yeah. Uh, yeah, Slavic people. Then, but Russia is so big, and there are so many different kind of people live there, and that I felt always, uh, I felt it was very stupid that people don't know that Russia is big, and it's like. There are so many people live there. I, f I felt it was just like strange because you can't really ignore that, I think. And then what, what is also important for, for me uh, that I work with language and because my language is endangered one. And, but I really believe that Mm, that language will survive because a lot of people are picking up and it's a process. So languages just don't die just like that. They they can, but then if you become more conscious about it and then you resist, you will keep your language. And I think that's possible. It's not like a language uh, disappears because, you know, it's evolution or it's because people don't want to use it anymore, just let it go. You know, <laughs> that's really not true. And so... And for me, it's important because I think I have a, quite a good connection with my family and with my mom and my father, my sisters. And so I, I think this is how I grew up, like talking, telling stories, my parents reading things to me, my sisters reading things to me, singing and also being exposed to different kinds of languages and not being able to learn your own language properly. If we talk about uh, your language, because uh, I was um, 
for preparation for this talk, I, I watched quite some videos about Buryatia, Buryat Mongolians, and about the languages, because it's not only one language being spoken in Buryatia, right? So Buryatia is quite a big republic, and uh, Buryatia is located near Mongolia, so we why then Buryat Mongolians, I actually also call myself Buryat Mongolian, is because we have relationship and cultural culturally we connected to Mongolia and it's just for us it's very strange to you know not to mention this because we are part of culturally and uh, religiously everything we are connected to Mongolia to Mongolian people and we were always connected to them so it's like we are a big family the only thing is that Mongolians live in Mongolia and we live in Russia and what is the language which which you speak in your family? I'm so good at answering questions, but like saying a lot, but not answering the questions. I will always come back to it. Don't worry, it's okay, my so job. That, yeah, uh, yeah, that's good. Uh, so the language is Buryat language. And in Buryatia, you speak two languages, Russian and Buryat. And a lot of people, and then also you have Evan people, Soyot people, and a lot of other people who live in uh, Buryatia, mainly what you learn at school is Russian and Buryat. But in 2000, I think 2018, you know, then UNESCO said, okay, Buryat language is going to be endangered. And in school, you are allowed to to learn your language, but it's it's like a free choice. You know, it's not mandatory. Oh, yeah. So that means that a lot of people withdrew from classes. And then the quality of the classes are also quite poor. I also really don't understand how that could happen is that I, from a small age, I was learning my language, but it just didn't stick to me. And then I wonder, why is that? Is this because it was not enough hours? Maybe it was not an, an, a good method? Maybe the a second language took over because Russian, of course, is very dominant. And I, I don't really know how that could happen, but like I, I speak quite well, but I don't, I'm not very good at writing in my own language, but I have to really look it up. Do you speak with your, with your family, uh, Buryat? Yeah, I do. I do speak uh, with my family in Buryat. And then we also in Russia, um, there was this law recently. They, they changed it. They said, okay, they said, okay, your language is uh, kind of. So it's like I'm talking about modern Russia, not about Soviet Russia. So you, the new language is, um, if it's a free choice, you do whatever you want. Like if you want to learn it, learn it. If you don't want to, don't. And then it's just like once a week or something. And then they also made another law which says that the, mo the dominant and the most important language is Russian. And then there was nothing about other languages. And then, excuse me, but there are 200 languages in Russia. And you cannot just say, okay, Russian is the, the most important language in Russia because how can you choose one language uh, from above 200 other languages? I think every language should be equal. It's very interesting that when you look at the language of the, the representation of the language, the, all the names, it just starts from this place, from the location. So the, if you look at the map and all your signs will be in Russian, and then all the indigenous names, they will be also translated into Russian. So, for example, you, you have a location, it's like a village, it's called Khurun, Khurun in Russian. 
but then the Borat name is Hurun. And then so that name is, is not on a sign as, uh, as I remember. I didn't go there for, for some time. Maybe some activists did some work and they put the name, Burat name there, but the language is not reflected anywhere. It's, it's really shrink to very personal, private situation. So you, uh, speak with, only with your family members. And for the language, it's not enough. Like in the public because kind of sphere, that's Russian is the main language of operation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I never had that in experiences in my life, but other people always say that they were bullied when they were speaking Burat. In all public space, they would be bullied if they spoke Burat and a lot of young children, uh, they would also refused to speak Buryat because they were bullied because they are Buryat or because they speak Buryat. And I think it's the same thing then. But then also this language lost its prestige uh, because it says that this language belongs to villagers. And then like if you're from village, then you're kind of a stupid person or backward person. Seen worse, or, yeah. Yeah, or like you are not cool. I think, I think it's more, it's not, it's not about being stupid, but it's more, mostly about not being cool. And then also when I look at the books, the quality of the books are not so good because it's, they were written in uh, Soviet time. And then, uh, in the Soviet time, I really don't know why I have to research, but they changed a lot of words. Um, and then, so you, you have a, you have then a, a word in Buryat, but then they change it to Russian one. And it's, it's just very difficult to read this book. It's very strange. And then the logic of the language is, is not there anymore. It's kind of copied from Russian grammar, but Buryat language is a different language. So it has to follow its own logic and it has its own grammar. But then if you uh, want to learn that from that kind of books, it's you you get very disgusted because it's just like very strange words for example i think it's similar if english comes into your language and sometimes you have then your own words in english yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but then it gets replaced and um, it's very strange, strange. combinations okay, yes very strange combinations before we go into your uh, practice into your performance art and we still have our Zoom still has 10 minutes before the break. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would like you to tell a little bit about the feeling and look of uh, Buryatia and the place where you're from. Uh, since it's located in Siberia and Siberia, of course, connects or like relates for me to something like very cold, very like extreme mm -hmm. weather conditions. Uh, I also uh, know a little bit about the lake Baikal. That's kind of like the classic mm -hmm. from that region, as well as the giant Lenin sculpture. That is, I think, in the capital city. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know. What what uh, do you tell people when they ask you how does your home look like? I think um, what people need to know, uh, I think it's very easy to look at your own surrounding first. So, for example, I am now in Amsterdam. And what I know about Amsterdam, what people can think about Amsterdam is that it's full of drugs and maybe some some tulips will come into your mind <laughs> but of course we yeah like people who live here they would be like no man Amsterdam is not only drugs totally. it's just like a tiny uh, part of it and like um, 
it lie Amsterdam is much more than that. So I think that people then always have to reverse that. If I think about uh, Amsterdam only about drugs, and then I say no, it's not true. Then, if you think about Siberia, probably it's the same story, right? For sure, we have <laughs> probably, certain cliches yeah. which attach to places yeah. if we are yeah. not from there, right? Yeah. Yes, but then these cliches, um, I think they show only one small part of it, and uh, and that the reality is much more complicated. Maybe that's why we make stereotypes because it's too complicated to to, to have it in your head. But um, yeah, Siberia is a very big place. I even do, haven't visited every places in Buryatia because it's so big, and um, and it has a different kind of climate. So I come from a uh, Cyan Mountains, then uh, a place where um, the borders of Buryatia lays in within the Cyan Mountains. Then it's quite cold, but then if you go up to, for example, to Ulanude, it's already a different story. It's um, not so different, but it's not so cold, and it's. Dry climate, uh, and a dry climate is a little bit. Uh, the cold is not so cruel. Then mm-hmm. it's quite, you know, it's it's quite pleasant. So minus twenty is actually where you can eat ice cream and take off your gloves off and say, ah, oh, such a nice weather. Because there and is minus sun. 30, then also. Yeah, there is always sun, mm-hmm. and it's dry, and the temperature changes to minus thirty. Then you sit at home. And home in Russia is always very warm. And then you actually don't have a lot of layers. You just sweat and it's just like sometimes unpleasantly warm. And then you go outside uh, that's a little bit cold and then you go out. So you just don't go out when it's minus 30. And it's uh, <laughs> last only, yeah, I think it's last only a few days, uh, maybe a week. And the climate change goes very quickly there. So before minus 30, I think it was, when I was a kid, I remember it was like weeks, but now it's only one week. And usually it's like minus 30, minus 25, and it's really fine. You will survive. I think a lot of Europeans will come there and it's like, hmm, it's actually not so cold, you know. It's not, it's, it's doable. But if you go to the nature, then it's very cold. But inside of the cities, it's okay. Yeah, so the stereotypes... Partly true, partly no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about yes. the, the Lenin sculpture? Is it still there? Okay, so yeah. Yes, we, we still have this very big uh, Lenin sculpture head. <laughs> and I wanted to make the project about it and I wanted to uh, ask people, um, you know, we should replace him and think about who could be there. And I thought maybe we should think about women head being there. Why not? You know, who would be there? But I never did that. So somehow I get like a lot of ideas and some of them I don't do that. Uh, like, I sometimes, yeah. No, I never managed to make that project. Uh, but th- th- there are a lot of variations. People also think about it. What, what could be there and what kind of head it would be. And yeah, Lenin, Lenin still, it's, it's just like part of the city and then I don't think it has like a symbolical meaning. Like then you you think it's a Lenin or something. It's more like a, oh, we have a very big hat in the city. That's very strange, but uh, yeah. It's funny, like uh, here in Berlin, of course, there were also a lot of sculptures uh, or monuments put uh, by the Soviets, uh, like Mm -hmm. in uh, East Berlin. And uh, after the transformation, most of them uh, got uh, taken out from the public space. 
And there's one, like it's called uh, Citadella Spandau. It's like a big room, like a kind of gallery where all these sculptures, which were not supposed to be anymore in public space, got put there. And there's also a huge Lenin head as well. But it, it okay. got separated from whole body sculpture. Ah, yeah, I remember that one. I, yeah, and uh, yeah. I yeah, I saw this one. It's quite impressive. It's huge. But I think the one that you have is like even bigger. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's the biggest one. <laughs> but it, I think it's also coming from fairy tales, no? Like if you think about it, you always have like a big hero head like a monster <laughs> it's all like a big head I, it's, I, I think it's referring to some of the fairy tales but I'm not sure yeah, yeah. in this short break a small announcement I'm very very happy that the Kitchen Conversations cookbook Homey Recipes from Artist is out now and available to purchase on my website as well as on the website of the publisher Contemporary Links If you listen to Kitchen Conversations on a regular basis you know that at the end of each episode I like to speak about food and home tastes and now all those tastes made it into a publication so the first 17 guests who shared their home recipes on the podcast since uh, June 2020 are now put together in a publication, a cookbook publication. And the recipes are accompanied by archival advice from my grandmother, Alicia, and beautiful photographs and drawings from various artists. Till November 6th, uh, the book is available to pre-order for a special price of minus 20%. I think it's a great gift great for anyone who likes to cook is curious of different uh, cuisines different cultures uh, it also has beautiful artworks and it is an art book so I think also a beautiful gift for Christmas or any other occasion otherwise also please keep in mind that I do have a Patreon account and there if you support me I will also gift you one copy of the Kitchen Conversations cookbook <music> Yes, yeah, so now I would like to move towards uh, your works finally. Oh, yeah. But you know what I wanted to add a little bit? I wanted to add, when you say because of my activities and because of the activities of historians and stuff that people know about Buryatia, but I think the most important thing about Buryatia is people who live in Buryatia and they do a lot of stuff and um, maybe they, they are not... Uh, got interviewed here in, in in Europe and they don't really have you know they don't they are not connected to Europe or other places but I have to say that the most important work local people do so I what I am doing is like I'm an artist uh, living in Europe and doing my own things um, I must say I feel like I am disconnected from Buryatia uh, in, in, because I don't live there And then I don't, like, some things I tell about Buryatia, I think it's not true anymore because it's already 12 years I don't live there. And things change so quickly. Um, and people change a lot and how they think. And the last time I was in Buryatia, it was um, in this year, in February, 20 days before the war started, I was there and I went a little bit further from the center and I realized actually 
people who live here and and I don't really understand each other. I think it's it's very it's a big disconnection. And then I think even if I make my art and I really love my hometown where I come from and stuff, but I think like people don't really care what I make. And then, of course, yeah, I totally understand. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, your art is in a way made for like the Western audience. Would you say? Mm, not maybe. Or even. is it then for yourself? Or? I I don't really know because then I cannot disconnect myself. You know, I cannot really disconnect myself from Europe, from European my European education, the way I like I read all these books. It's all on me, and like the cinema I, I see. Uh, and then also my background, like I grew up in Buryatia. It's, I cannot disconnect these things. They are, they are there in me. So, and then I also think like I show, I showed my performances in Buryatia and it, I, I, I could feel that people, uh, and I, we were speaking and that was very intense because in, in Europe, when I show my performances, people also cry and they, uh, also feel it because uh, I guess my performances sometimes they get uh, beyond the language. Even though I work with the language, they go beyond the language. It's more about the feeling, and then you people feel about it. But in Buryatia, it's more intense because they know what I'm talking about. Maybe they deny, and they say, "Yeah, what are you talking about? And I don't understand." It's also okay, but I feel like sometimes. Sometimes I have a very, um, I'm, I think I'm very scared to show things in Buryatia more than in Europe. Because then in Europe I can, I guess it's comparable then to your family. So then you, for example, imagine you wrote a book and then you wrote a book about your family. And then when people re- read it and they are not part of your family and they loved it, they were like, oh my God, this is amazing. But... Uh, but then you will be like worried what your family would think about your book because you think, oh my God, maybe they will recognize it or we never spoke about it actually. You know, like it's a lot of physical things. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely understand what you mean. I think a lot of artists, I think a lot of artists also listen to the podcast can definitely feel it, especially that most of the artists I interview are people who live, let's say, in the Western context or got educated there and speak English and their work is very much looking at the home, Mm -hmm. but in English. So you already have like a bit of a different approach and mostly it comes because you don't live at home and you kind of dig more into the topics of your identity and of your belonging in a way. And yeah, I actually had this uh, experience that I made a work about my uh, the, the women in my family. And one of the stories, it was like five stories, was about my mom. Mm-hmm. And uh, the work was, uh, let's say, really well seen. I got like even awards for it. It was in my bachelor at the Rietveld. And then um, I was showing it in Italy. And then uh, my mom actually came to see it and it was so confronting to let her see the work and actually realize yeah, that's about her. Somehow it didn't, it became something else than an artwork, you know? Yeah, it yeah. became almost like a, yeah, in, in intimate message that I had towards her or certain yeah. problematics between us that I couldn't share on an everyday basis and kind of made it into an artwork, which was... Uh, yeah, quite a special moment. I think that's beautiful in art that you can confront 
uh, yeah, clo people close to you through your pieces. Yeah. How? What was your mom's reaction at your work? Did she like it? <laughs> she, she liked it. Yeah, she was super proud, of course, but it was also like a bit this realization, like she didn't know I have this feeling ah, in a way. Okay, I understand. Because we never like verbalized it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was like a very feminist work about uh, kind of connection between women and generations. And, ah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. But definitely like with a posit positive outcome and mm -hmm. like it opened maybe certain communication uh, between us. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, right? It's difficult to say. Like, for example, my mom, Uh, talking about my work, like uh, I have this uh, work, Yohor. It's this is my graduation work, where it's it's called Yohor, and it's the name of a song which I'm singing. And then the stupid thing is that I forgot the the song. I really liked the song when I was a kid. I was like, wow, this is an amazing song. And this song, everybody knows it. And then this song, uh, people perform when they come together, like on a big. Festivals like New Year and Summer Festival, it's called, um, so New Year is called Sakhalan, and Summer Festival is called Sulkharban. So people come together and dance this song. It's actually a dance song and it's very cheerful. And <laughs> But in my variation, it's a very sad song. And, uh, and this is then, uh, it's about being together. So the, the lyrics, what I'm saying, like there are two sentences and I say, let's come together on uh, earth which is very soft as grass uh, to dance this is what i say can you say it in buriat tohme shinin gazarta terin bejha ah oh wait tohme shinin ga i have to i have to sing it because then i cannot remember tohme shinin gazarta gazarta terin So I remembered it only a song. So, but this is Amazing. my yeah. But this is my own interpretation, and the real as Yohor uh, goes differently. The real Yohor is different. So I changed it. But and what is confusing about this piece is that everybody think that I forgot the whole language and that I don't speak it, but I speak the language. And but at the time when I made this piece, like the language in my brain really shrank. It was very small. And then, but I turned the situation around and I managed to get it back. So I I can speak the language, still struggling with grammar, but it's just like it became. So it was really shrinked, but it, it, you know, there is this situation. You have this material where you can put water on and it becomes like bigger. This is what happened to my language now. I put some water and it became bigger again. And then, it spread. Yes, yes. And I was in Buryatia for the whole month in September. And I was surprised actually how much I can remember and how much I can say. It's, I guess uh, the language depends on the context. So, for example, if I see Buryat person I, or from my family, and in my family, I only speak Buryat. So if my mom comes in now, I would not be able to speak English, I think. That would be so weird <laughs> because she's around. <laughs> you know? Yeah, she's around. So, and then if my mom, I only speak Buryat. Uh, and then uh, this is a lot of confusion came from my text. I think the text, uh, the what I was, but I was saying that I forgot the song. So I remember only two sentences from the song, but not like the, but the whole language is endangered. So this song is, um, 
representing the whole situation, what happened, what is happening with the language, then then what what is it what it is when you forget words and you cannot really express yourself and the the words are reducing and then they disappear and they got replaced by some other words. Totally. Yeah. I am curious because in most of your performances, uh, you use your body and your voice, mm-hmm. and most of the time you choose a, yeah a sentence or a word that you repeat o- over and over mm-hmm. again. I'm curious to to speak a little bit about this gesture of repeating and connecting or disconnecting to a certain word or sentence. Mm. I was thinking about it yesterday because I read your questions and I was like <laughs> and then I was also trying to make more like a, a, from the February I started writing more texts and then they became more elaborate and then I think what has changed and why I do that so before for me these two sentences or like these repetitions was the way to go to the meditative state, being disconnected from my own, you know, like a kind of self-awareness and then be really on this emotional path where I feel like what I feel and maybe things I have hidden or things I have didn't speak about that they could come out. That So it was more like then getting myself into kind of a, a state where I was really honest, where I was alive, so that I was able to be just a human being connected to another human being because of course I'm a performance artist and I really need to connect to others but interesting thing is that I don't maybe need an audience to make my performances from the the ones I made I didn't really need somebody to be there to make the statements I was making so this repetition was just like unlocking doors for me to get somewhere and then also because then I, I, I will be repeating, but then the, the repetitions also changes, the word changes, like intonation, the way I speak, the speed also changes because then I'm, I'm getting into different kind of stages of acceptance, of getting angry. I don't know, really, like, it's, it was something very therapeutic. I think I need to find a therapist to talk about it. Like, okay, explain me what did I do? Why did I do that? Do you know a little bit about it, you know? It's really, like, uh, something interesting. Uh, Coming back to the fact that you don't need audience in your performances, I also noticed that a lot of your works are filmed in a very specific way, in mm-hmm. very specific locations, uh, so they are more like video performances. Do you kind of distinguish those, like doing live performances and video, or is your performance really made to be filmed and then uh, shown on a screen, for example? Yeah, like uh, the the series I made, so I have the six performances, uh, they're all filmed, and we I worked with the same cameraman, and they are all meant to, to be watched. And I I can also make them live, but then it's more an experiment than the artwork itself. So the artwork itself, in that time, it was this film. Because I was, my, for me, it was important to capture my language on film and also appear on the film myself as representing uh, other of Siberia. Because I think, mm, yeah, like I was always confronted that 
I will be the only one in the group from Siberia, or then people don't really know that Asians exist in Russia. That's why I put myself. Maybe it's very simple and too very straightforward, but because there is no such things that it's not, it's straightforward because there are non, there are not so many things like that. I, I guess if you Google or look at this YouTube videos about Buryatia, those will be the people in traditional clothes. And Indeed. Yeah, yeah. And then this is how people think they have to portray their culture, they have to portray themselves this way. But I also think it's also taught, or it, it's also taken from Soviet time, how people portray themselves. Because, like, can you imagine then you go and then make a film about Amsterdam? And then I will be thinking, like, oh, how people dress in Amsterdam? Like, what do they eat? What do they have? It's like, oh my God, look, this Amsterdamer is going outside. Or, like, oh, this Amsterdamer is going, like, um, is having this beautiful instrument. Look, you know, it's just this is how. And then they will be like, this like a traditional Dutch music Very true. Um, yet uh, going underneath my uh, film about Amsterdam and like it will be the same all the time and then there will be like beautiful Dutch lady coming and singing something you know this is very cliche narratives museum like kind yeah, of very yeah, yeah. Dis- detached from e- contemporary exactly. society and it's detached from subjectivity of the people and themselves because this is somebody who's looking like oh my god this is like this uh, point of view of the other and not coming from your own like do I wear this traditional clothes every day no because I don't really know how to do that like the 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 meaning is gone and it was destroyed uh, and was replaced during Soviet time so what we are talking about and if I want to I have to think about what do I need now what kind of clothes do I need and what colors do I need? What It's not like I'm going to copy what people were wearing 100 years ago, you know? Because then everything changes. So the culture is very... It's not a solid thing. It's very flexible. So it's always changing and it's current. And it's very related to time. Uh, so what I see from Soviet time, I, I just think it's just like a play. It's like a carnival. It's not... It's Mimicry not, kind of, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like... Is if you put a costume on and you become a bullet person. That's not, <laughs> that's not, you cannot become just because you're wearing a traditional clothes, you know. It's uh, something else. <laughs> I also wanted to uh, shortly speak about your other work. Uh, we are not from here, yeah. from 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that's interesting because there you actually use a Russian word yeah. in your performance. Yeah. Um, it's um, this performance. I was thinking about it, like every time I speak about it, and I think like I have this story why I, how I came up with this performance. It's like I was standing, I work sometimes too late, and then I was standing uh, on a train. I was waiting for my train, and there was this moment when you're tired, and then you like you're in a limbo, you know, somewhere you just don't think about something. And that song came into my mind. I was like, "Panayehla ya, panayehla ya, panayehli ti, panayehla ti, panayehli mi, panayehli mi, panayehli vi, panayehli vi." So this song came to me. I was like, 
wow, this is interesting. What is it? It just appeared in your head. Yeah, it just appeared in my head. I think I was just like, I could just catch, catch something in my thing. But then I realized... And where were you? In which uh, city were you then? I think I was in Amsterdam. I was waiting for the train in Amsterdam. So, but then I remember, like, I think that the story of mine replaced the actual memory why I made this piece. And then when um, a few days ago, I remembered why it happened. Um, because my sister, she told me that somebody, she, my sister, she goes to the hospital and she was at the hospital in Russia. And then somebody said to her that she doesn't belong here. And I think I was, so, I, I don't know, I, I always feel like so angry when somebody tells these things to my family or to people in Russia, uh, and like to everybody, because it's very offensive. You're like, you're doing your own thing and somebody comes to you and says, he don't belong here. It's like, what the fuck? What's your problem, you know? <laughs> Go away. <laughs> and then, so, I think with this piece, I really wanted to protect my sister. I think I was like, I think with this piece, I wanted to say, fuck you, racist. Like, 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 just leave my sister alone. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> and then, like, lately, my, why I remember this feeling is that because my brother texted me a few days ago and he was like, you know, I get, like, a lot of racist comments these days. And, that, for example, that he, then people will, like, ask, oh, but you don't have Russian passport because Buryatia is not part of Russia. Oh, you came from somewhere. You know, this, like, really strange things. And Russia has a lot of problems with racism. It's like very toxic. I like, I don't know, it's, I'm very, it's very tiring to talk about it, but it's very, uh, the racism is not in the discussion. People are not aware how harmful it is and then how heavy it is, then you will be like walking around and somebody screams things to you. It's not how nice, like, and it's not like, people always say like, just get over it, don't, pay attention and things like that. But they are like, a na- it's like a nail. It's like a, it's like somebody put some small stuff under your ne- uh, nail, you know? And like, it's like a zanosa. It's, it's really annoying. And it's small because you think like, oh, this, this, this person is like having its bad day. It's not actually about me. But still, mm. it still annoys you so much and it comes, comes and comes. And it's very annoying. I really have to say it's very annoying. So if you see somebody on, on the street and then this person doesn't look like you and you're having a bad day, just say to yourself that you are having a bad day, but don't react to person. It's very annoying. I think with my pieces, sometimes I cannot, of course, I don't live in Russia and I cannot protect my family at the time when it happened. So I think I use art to come into this public discussions and say like, please don't do this. Okay, you know? So I guess this is coming from that, that trying to be in a public discussion and making artwork as a reaction what happens to you in a daily life. Um, and that's, that's why, how I made it. And in, in my piece, I have this conversation with, in my head with this lady who said this to my sister. I will be like, like, you can maybe see on my face that I'm so annoyed. And then the, what is important in that, in that piece is that there is, um, a silence. So I always look at the pr- and the camera and think like, Indeed, yeah. I was like, what the fuck is going on? Like, you know, this, this, 
I'm very surprised because I don't know. It's like、um, I think racism is very stupid. It's like I I don't really know how can I describe racism, but it's just dumb, very dumb.、Uh, Do you think like this national tendencies became stronger now or got more space in Russia since the? Beginning of the war, or I mean, beginning like the full-scale kind of war in Ukraine. Is there some connection? You think that people have now more power, and they think this is okay to to behave like this in the public, or that was always I think there? It, I, it was always there, but I, I feel like it's getting worse because then people are getting right to be assholes, and then yeah, to、indeed. feel assholes. And the the sad thing about it, I I always wake up and think like. Okay, this is like what's going on in Ukraine is painful. Like it's just like unbearable. But then I always think like all these propagandists, all these people who support war, how they gonna wake up after they realize it's like what they've done. But they realize that they will never wake up from it. It's not the ability to wake up from things and say like. Oh fuck! I was wrong. You know they are never. They just be- believe it so so deeply. Yeah, they yeah, and they just like that. I guess it's.、Uh, I, I guess it's something that you can change. Or I don't really know. So I feel like at this point of my life, um, and maybe I am wrong, and maybe it will change. But somehow I feel like if you were born dumb, you will be dumb, and then you will believe that Putin. You will believe what Putin is saying because you don't. Somehow, I, I at this point, it's a I very dystopic、uh, idea, right? But yes, I just like I because I really always believe that something will change. People will wake up and people will be like, "Fucking hell, what we are doing to Ukrainians!" But I'm afraid that's not going to happen. I'm afraid that people are just like that, and they are just really think like that. So when people say. These stupid things to my sister. She really thinks like that. I think then this stupid lady who said these two things to my sister or to my brother, they are really like that. I don't think it's like they just like this、uh, mm. world of you. They think okay, I'm your king here, and I I don't like you because you because of your color or something or because of your eyes. And like excuse me, lady, I can't change my eyes. I was born like that, you know. I was like. These these things I cannot change, and then you're angry、uh, at something because because who I am, because the way I was born, or things I really can't change. I cannot change my country. I cannot change my location. Can't change my parents. Can't change my sisters. These things I I have it with me from my the way I step in this world, and these things makes this stupid lady angry, and that's how why I think. This is not going to change. That lady is not going to change because maybe this is how she was born to think this way, you know.、Mm. Uh, but, but Education, I have, I, of course, right? Yeah, but like I mean, Google it or like you live in the world. There are so many people, and then you live in Russia and you don't know that Buryatia belongs to Russia. It's like. Where is your education, lady? Like I don't really know, you know. Like what the fuck you were doing all these years? So then I feel like I sometimes I feel hopeless. Yeah. <laughs> yes, like a lot of hopelessness in my eyes, in my voice these days. But yeah, I was really always hoping that people will wake up and change their minds and be like. 
I realize they know the truth. And then later they will say, I, I forgive myself. I changed the situation. I changed the, the, the way I look at the situation. It's not my problem. This is how people are going to look at me. You know, it's their problem. This, this is what they're going to say, I think, later. So I'm like, I don't know. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, racists are hopeless people. For sure. Do you think there is some um, potential in people from different uh, republics uh, living in Russia that could perhaps do some uh, revolutionizing the mindset of like the Slavic Russians? I think it's happening already. So like online, there are a lot of works going on online and communities form. So people helping each other and people are, are working towards that inf giving information. And what is important that I think people are realizing, I think they knew a lot. Everything what I speak is not known. It's not new for Russians, of course, for people from uh, the republics. And I don't, sometimes Slavic people tell me if they come from St. Petersburg or from Moscow, they say like, Oh my God, people actually say this to you? I was like, fuck you. Like, mm. you live in Russia. You see this kind of people like me. What do you think people, like, don't tell me that you don't know this problem? There is, of course, hope. So it's just like my feeling sometimes. I feel like it's a hopeless situation, but I hope, I think people are able to change, actually. <laughs> I think that because the, the ideas change quite fast, uh, and we can also see that with Stalin, when Stalin died, a lot of people changed their minds. I think they don't change their mind. I think they knew what's going was going on, but they felt free to say. I think uh, now this is also what's happening, and uh, so the communities. What we were speaking about, communities of indigenous people are really fighting against the war, and they do a lot of work to help. To help each other, and not only indigenous people, but then also people who just leave and they want to uh, go get away from the situation. And then we have, for example, Free Buryatia Foundation. It's uh, a community of people who are against war and they against racism and they help people um, to get out, away from the war. And they were very successful in the beginning. They were like. They uh, managed to get to help like 500 people to get away from the war, like soldiers who didn't want to fight, and they returned them home. It was a big success, I think. Because uh, just just to jump in, mm -hmm. from what I heard, a lot of people from like the republics got recruited against their will, right? To fight uh, in the Russian army. Mm, yeah, like um, so. I have to. Start from the beginning, I think, from February. What happened is that the people were sent to the war and they were not, people didn't know they were going to the war. So for them, it was a big surprise. And then they were like trying to leave. Uh, I think people really tried to leave. And then this is how like these communities formed. First, they were just wanted to say we are against the war, but then they, they saw that a lot of people want to leave and they can't. They don't know their rights. And so they, they have uh, lawyers who help them. And then some people manage to leave and some people don't really know what happened to them. They died, I guess. And that the situation was hell. So yeah, it was very bad because then nobody knew what was going on. So a lot of people, I think they 
just died because they were not like I don't really know even they could I, of course I don't know what happened there but I think then the first people were surprised that they, they didn't have information so the first people who were at the war they were people who were recruited as and they had a contract with army so it's like you know in the Netherlands people work at the, in the army it's their profession so this is what Job, yeah. yeah. So then, people who have who were working, like kind of soldiers. Right? Yeah, yeah, like the soldiers, like professional soldiers. Yeah, 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 professional warriors. And then, because it was a job, you could get, you know, you could say like, I don't want to do this anymore. Then they were leaving. A lot of people left. What we need to know about Russian army, Russian army is a oppressive mechanism. So it's not so easy to leave. So even if you want to, they will push you to stay so they also will torture you and say like oh, well, you know you're a loser you're doing something bad and they uh, manipulate people a lot so I guess it's group against the one person and then if you're not strong enough it's very difficult to get away from this and then from September what happened is that Putin changed the law and now you can't leave like if you leave then you face uh, 10 years of prison or something like that and prison in Russia is like very bad stuff. It's like a gulag. I don't know if people know what gulag is, but it's like a torture place. Yeah, it's it's uh, kind of originates from like Lenin and Stalin times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of forced labor camps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Soviet Union. And, and like, if you imagine the hell on earth, this is gulag. Like what people went through gulag and how uh, they were treated and how they were raped and tortured this is like gulag and this is still happening in russia like the modern prisons are very bad like the human rights don't exist there like uh, and the prisoner is like a the lowest person in the world doesn't have any rights that's very sad, sad to think about it so people are afraid of it and then for some people, it's very strange. For some people in Russia, war is more abstract than this prison. So if you want to scare people, you say like you go to prison and then people will like see all these photos, tortures, everything, and they don't want to do that. And for what Russia is telling to them is that the war is not happening, right? Like they say they even it's not even allowed to say that it's a war they say it's a special operation some kind of yeah and they say okay but look we haven't touched anybody those are ukrainians killing each other this is what they say it's like bullshit and so people think they it's too abstract for them i also think like okay dude just google like just just search the information and then i also feel like it's a crime these days if you think that if you didn't check the information, it's actually a crime, I think, these days in Russia, because if you, you can just Google, okay, a Russian wants me to be at the war. What does this actually mean? And if you haven't Googled it and then you just went there, it's just a crime, mm. I think. Yeah, I also often use that argument, but then people tell me, but like, you have no idea how propaganda works and like some people don't have access to internet ah, so they bullshit. cannot check the news. They have the internet, like the TikTok, Instagram. Like I come from a very small village in the Taiga somewhere. We have internet, like people are able to check and they can check, okay, what's happening in Ukraine now? 
and they have telegrams and everything and everything. They have everything. They just don't want to check it. Or maybe if I Google, I will find it. And maybe there will be like, um, some kind of hidden information and things like that. But, um, I think like there are, of course, like everybody, uh, every, every family has its own Natalia, you know, somebody who's like saying like, fucking hell, what the fuck? What are you doing? So this Natalia is sending all the information to her relatives. I'm pretty sure about it. And then you don't mm-hmm. listen. Then it's just mm-hmm. something is wrong with you, I think then. Uh, because then you have information. The information is there. And if you don't use it, then it's your fault. I feel like. That's a good point. I think we also underestimate a little bit like the the kind of village uh, yeah, people yeah, like in Russia, you know, that they don't have uh, TV and radio. Oh and my God, they have they everything. Have, it's not their fault oh that God. they don't know what's happening. They have everything. They know everything. Those bastards, they know everything. And they they all have these families. And somebody's, of course, some one person is saying like, wake up, what the fuck? And they don't listen to this. This is like, I don't understand. I don't understand. I guess... I guess I have to do another degree uh, in psychology to understand why people are acting this way. But I guess, mm. I guess information also doesn't really help. So like, I'm very surprised and everybody has its uh, smartphone. Everybody can go. I guess it's a fear. I think what I underestimate is a fear because I live in a very protected environment. I live in the Netherlands and then I, for me, it's very easy to speak up and say like, okay, you know, but I guess this fear and the stress, then that I don't understand. So I, I, of course, talking from my very privileged position, maybe that's, that's what I don't understand. But still, still, I think people should look it up more. Inform themselves at yes, least. Yes. And there, maybe if they don't dare to protest, right? At least like don't act intentionally. Yeah for the system yeah or but it also feels like then there are a bunch of zombies but i don't think there are a lot of them because there are a lot of them because they are allowed to speak and the others are not allowed to speak so that's why it feels like as everybody is just supporting the war and everybody's like screaming uh, but it's i guess hmm. i guess then we just don't hear the others and we don't see them that much there are a lot of protests and i have a lot of respect towards those people because i think if i were in russia i would actually not dare to go outside because you don't want to be tortured and raped in prison but then i always feel like ukrainians are suffering so much and then they are dying on streets because of they you know like they have a will and they have strength to fight for it and then russians are just scared I guess like uh, mm-hmm. Soviet time was very traumatic, was too much into the system of punishing. And that's how you maybe people are like so frozen. That's a very interesting yeah. point. Yeah, for sure. There is some deep intergenerational trauma. Yeah, for sure. For uh, sure. Acting on them for sure. Yeah. yeah. But then also what I think, I guess people got used to violence because there was a war in Chechnya. And then a war in Syria, and then people don't do anything about it as well. And then I think maybe they think it's too far from them, but it's also coming very mm-hmm. close. Like, I don't think somebody is going to be uninfluenced by war in, in Ukraine th- at this moment. Everybody is going to be affected. 
Also, of course, the Ukrainians have a lot of the Soviet trauma as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like uh, it's a uh, so lot of. And they still uh, fight, like. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But they of their whole heart. That that's true. But they are very uh, brave, and then I I don't know, like it's not even like a choice to be brave because then you have to be brave because this is what's happening to you. And then I guess if Ukrainians would could choose and say like. Do you want to be brave or do you want to be like free and happy? And they would just everybody would say like, oh, leave me alone. I want to be free and happy. You know, it was like, it's not like a choice or something. It's just they have to. I guess Russia is is a little bit more dictatorial. Totalitarian. Totalitarian yeah. than Ukraine. Yeah, Ukraine was always a free country. Um, and this is a big difference. Democratic, yes, yeah. The, dif- the big difference. Uh, living in totalitarian regime than living in a free country. It's a difference. Mm. Big difference. Sadly, but it is. I think that's a good moment to round up our uh, conversation. I think, uh, yeah, I enjoyed talking to you so much. I would love to do it longer, but I think uh, both energies should be also <laughs> yeah, released yeah. and go on with the yeah, day. Yeah. At the very end, I wanted to go back to your home, mm-hmm. uh, Buratia, yeah. and speak a little bit tradition on this podcast about favorite food from home. Ah, yes, yes. So tell oh me. Oh my God. Oh, the, the traditional food. Okay, so food in Buratia is nice, very, very tasty. And what I really like about food in uh, nomadic culture is that Nomadic cultures were always very ecological and they were always like recycling everything. And so, for example, you have something from milk and then you can make a lot of stuff from milk. And then from meat, you can also like, we are more meat oriented cultures and it's all recycled. So everything what is being used by nomads, well, everything what's used for food it will be not wasted. So there's no waste of food. Uh, at least it was mm-hmm. before like that. And and what I have... Can you give like an example? Um, I, I think from milk, maybe mostly, then you can make a, a lot of stuff from milk and maybe even make a a kind of a wine from milk. Yeah, right. yeah, it's a lot of different stuff and it's it's never wasted. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to say um, is that sometimes people don't understand, you know, when they talk about ecology and about food of nomadic cultures then they always pinpoint that we eat a lot of meat it feels like a brutal somehow because then you see that the cow was will, will be killed butchered yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. but you know i i've learned that people can treat the animals badly when i moved out from Buryatia. because for example if you even kill a cow people will treat the cow in a way that she doesn't feel any pain during the slaughtering and it will be done with a lot of respect to her body, to her soul. There will be like ritual provided that she goes away with the peace. And I learned that these factories exist with a lot of slaughtering and stuff. Only when I went I was away from Buryati, I was like, oh my God, people can treat animals like that. You know, I was not aware of it. Because I, Super interesting, yeah, I was yeah. always saw that people would treat animals as their family members. And it has changed a lot, especially for dogs. We have a lot of stray dogs and stray dogs is a big problem. And then people shoot them 
that's really like against a society, but I guess it also shows then a poverty of urbanization. Um, mm -hmm. because I, I think in, I'm not sure, but I, I'm, of course, I'm speaking only from my own personal stories, but I don't remember we had this kind of problems in our village that we had like stray dogs because everybody, you just own the dog and the dog comes mm -hmm. to you. And then there's, so there is no kind of, there is more control over the dogs than in urban settings. So then I think we should really learn a lot from nomadic cultures, how to treat nature and how to treat to food in terms of waste, because there is a lot of knowledge of how to live in the nature without harming it. In terms of clothing, clothes, shoes, everything is made not to harm nature in any way. And I think that's very beautiful. And also like nomadic lifestyle, uh, like my uh, ancestors used to be nomads. But it also stopped quite, um, I think in 19th century, they were already gone, this nomadic lifestyle. But still, it was also very conscious about the place because people think about nomadism as like you're moving from one place to another, but it's more about taking care of the land. So everything what you do doesn't harm the land. So you don't eat it everything. So you come back by seasons, you know, you have a specific roots. And it's not random. Right. It's not random. It's really like logical. And it's, it goes a lot with respect toward the land that you are giving a space for it to heal from your own existence in a way. And so it has like this beautiful rules around it. And also about uh, rivers, what I found it very beautiful uh, is that in Colombia, I met some Colombian artists and they told me that in uh, Colombia, rivers and ocean, uh, like lakes, they, uh, they treat it as equals. They treat it, they have even their own rights because they are alive. And I think we should also have that, you know, we should have a, a book what it says, like, this is the rights of our river and this is the rights of the grass. This is the rights mm. of the trees. And you can, you know, like I was thinking about it, like we go and cut a tree, but did we actually like ask the tree, hey, sorry, are we gonna cut you? Totally. Yeah, yeah. Or we gonna We don't even think about no. it. It's like we are so concentrated on our own lives and our own profits yeah. that we forgot about the other living. But then I uh, for example, the how I was taught as a kid, I was like I would pick up the flower and my mom would come to say and she was like, Hey, do you actually realize what you did? You just picked up the flower. It's the same it, it, it will be the same if somebody comes to you and breaks your arm. Would you like that? I was like, no, I don't, I don't like it. Sorry, Bob. <laughs> this is how I was brought up. <laughs> so I think we should actually think about like, do we actually want us somebody coming in and breaking our legs and taking our hair and like, I don't know, arms and stuff like that? No, right? So yeah, more consciousness and about nature. I think that's important. So important. Yeah. So is there any recipe, specific recipe uh, that you would like to share that you like to have I like, uh, as like home food? Home food, I really like uh, this Mongolian tea. I have a Mongolian tea. My friend brought it to me and I really like it. Right. It's uh, so there is like leaves and then you boil it for 10 minutes. But you can't make it because you don't have this Mongolian tea. <laughs> <laughs> well then I have to come and you have to give it yes, to me a yes. bit so then you boil it and then you add 
milk and it's this uh, the tea oh with milk yes you yeah you drink tea with milk and it's beautiful delicious so every time you go there you order a mongolian tea and if you don't like it that's okay but think about others they really like this tea it's their home home uh, tea amazing yes. and do you drink it like in the morning or uh, during special the day? occasions because it's very it's like sometimes it's uh, can be a pest uh, you know it can be uh if you're lazy and you're in a hurry then then you just drink uh, tea from a tea bag <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and this is like more like a moment yes, to share. Yes, it's a more moment kind of tea and it's uh, very nice. Love it. I will do it maybe tonight. Nice. Do it and think about our conversation. This was it for today. Thank you for reaching till the end of this episode. I will see you next time with another great artist and speaker. And as mentioned at the beginning, you can support this podcast via Patreon on patreon.com slash kitchen conversations. Or alternatively, you can also help me develop this platform by making a one-time donation, following my Instagram account, or leaving a comment on one of the podcast players. All of the needed links are placed in the show notes of this episode. Take good care. Until next time.